And here come the Greeks, led on by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Lobby Hegel. Nietzsche and Hegel there. This is Philosophy for Theologians, the latest program from Reform Forum online at reformforum.org. We are broadcasting live out of Studio B in Glenside, Pennsylvania. And my name is Camden Busey, and I'm very pleased to have here with me Bob LaRocca, who is a student at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's going to be uh, entering THM work sooner than later, and uh, he's going to lead our discussion today. But welcome, Bob. Thanks for coming over. Hello. Nice. What else you want from me? We, nothing else. <laughs> we just played the sound. Yeah, that's it. We also have Jared Oliphant, who is Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for coming over, Jared. Thanks for having me. Jared <laughs> Oliphant. And finally, going around the, around the horn, we have Jonathan Brack, who is Admissions Counselor at Westminster. He's also an MDiv student there. Thanks for having us over again, Jonathan. You know it. Jonathan. Brack. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we've done our introduction sufficiently. We are going to, let me introduce to you today's topic. We are going to do a very brief introduction to the philosopher Aristotle, speaking about who he was, what his basic ideas are, and why we even bother looking at him today, how his thoughts have endured for thousands of years, and why he has lasting influence and a lasting impact upon the world of philosophy, even in the year 2010. So I'm going to hand things over to Bob. Just to get things started, to talk about the man, the philosopher, the thinker, Aristotle. Well, from the first off, uh, when I think about any kind of appraisal of any, um, you know, a global philosopher like Aristotle <clears throat> or Thomas Aquinas or something like Immanuel Kant or Plato, we are looking at him from a Vantillian standpoint on this show. And uh, I'm not sure how much I have to introduce Vantill, but... From what uh, that work in the Reformed world, what he has provided for us is a theistic worldview wherein we can be full-blooded realists. We can, as thinkers, believe that the world from without actually exists and that we can actually know something about it. And uh, we can know these things on the basis of our dogmatic claims coming out of our theological tradition. That is most important. I would have nothing to do with realism. I would have... I would be, I think, in the utter, utter bog of, of skepticism if it was not for God's work in Revelation. And from that standpoint, this is why I think we should be interested in Aristotle, because Aristotle um, is one of the forerunners, along with his teacher Plato, of a full-blown philosophy of realism, that mm-hmm. this world exists and we can know something about it. Mm. And that is uh, one of the most important contributions uh, in, his, in his global system, that he's given to philosophy, something that has held um, ascendancy for more than 2,000 years over, now, over the Western civilization. Today, are you going to talk about uh, Aristotle's work is huge, of course, but are you going to uh, talk about his epistemology, ontology, metaphysics? Well, that's the interesting thing. More un- Unlike any philosopher before him, even his teacher Plato, who is more or less concerned with ab- ab- you know, abstract foundations for right. for. Uh, for various um, various uh, topics of thought, whether it be justice or beauty, um, or you know, or morality, Aristotle systematized these things yeah. into uh, 
into a coherent worldview where you can look at anything. I mean, he's someone who uh, wrote textbooks on logic, textbooks on knowledge, metaphysics, ethics. He even did natural sciences, even laid the foundations for the empirical science, the empirical sciences that held sway for millennia. Mm -hmm. And so it's an encompassing worldview. And I think that's what we should have as Christians, one that we can go into any discipline and have our philosophical starting point inform, maybe better put, uh, be a lens in which we can almost systematize our world into a a coherent uh, Christian theistic worldview. And that's the attraction to any kind of global philosopher like somebody like Aristotle. Yeah, you can you can see the the primitive version of the scientific method at work throughout any of his works. I mean, whether that be physics, obviously, where it's most um, revealed, but also metaphysics. I mean, he's so uh, precise and thorough in what he wants to get at, and everything does have kind of a logical order. That um, I just appreciate that um, system. Of, as right. you said earlier, um, that it's 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 readable in that way. It's not readable as just you know casual reading, but um, it's very dense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, um, even with like syllogisms, it just that's you know deduction and logic. Right. So it's like it seemed as if Aristotle, because there's nobody really before him who systematized that way. It's just yeah. like he pulled syllogisms out of the air. He all that we know about argument. Right. And ways in which we can construct various arguments, you know, and all the ways that you can lay out um, just, you know, logical proofs. Mm-hmm. Aristotle sat in Athens and just thought up of hundreds and hundreds of them. And he wrote them down in a, a, a book called Prior Analytics and then systematized them further in po- Posterior Analytics. Mm-hmm. And that held to be the, lo- the logic of the West until maybe Frege in the uh, mid-19th century. So from – and he was doing this in the 360s BC until the <laughs> 1850s right. AD. And that was the logic book of the West. Well, he wasn't personally doing the work that long, but <laughs> – No, no, but the uh, – but his, right, his work, but his work was, was the, the textbook, the definitive work right. until Frege came and added some mathematics to the mix and did, did some other things to, uh, that improved and, and uh, augmented uh, Aristotle's logic. Yeah, and you can see that in the in the history of philosophy. You can see, you know, the pre-Socratics are concerned with these very broad concepts like right. change, unity. How do we get at these kinds of things and have a you know one term or one concept applied to all of reality? Then Plato comes along and kind of narrows it a little bit more. Aristotle comes along and completely systematizes everything um, and really sets the precedent onward. Um, so tracing it, you can see the natural development through that. And it's all those pre-Socratics that he's interacting with throughout yeah. all of his. I mean, from Thales, who would say all is water. Parmenides, who say, I mean, uh, Parmenides, who would say all is one monad, or mm-hmm. or even the Pythagorean school. He's especially concerned with who says that all is number. For Aristotle, everything is matter and form, mm-hmm. um, being and essence, and the the dialectic between these two informs everything mm-hmm. and we can and he says that you can abstract these things from the from the actual sensibles can you can you briefly describe the difference between aristotle's and plato's metaphysic you you bring up the the world of forms but you add matter into that um how would you describe the difference between the two and uh how was that an improvement or at least a change from from plato's scheme well in plato's uh, scheme abstract universals exist um, I guess the, the classic way of putting it is out there. That's what mm-hmm. it, it, in the form <laughs> world, yeah, in the in actuality, the, yeah. and they they exist in the in the actual world. 
as exemplars for things. That so if you, there's a tree somewhere, there is the you, you the form of a tree. Yes, you participate in an abstract the abstract entity of treeness, and that treeness is out there. It does not participate in reality at all. And um, how you know these things and how you know these forms is almost more of a doctrinal religious standpoint. How you how you can get to them is um, by almost believing that they exist and that what you what you see in in whether it's a tree is the imperfect form of that uh, eternal reality. For Aristotle, uh, the universals exist in things, and we abstract those universals when we perceive them. Perceiving perceiving a thing, you're perceiving it in its form, and that form is a imperfect form of the of the universal in which it participates in. And so in, in that way, it's, uh, it's, it's, a less, it's less of a um, religious standpoint like you'd have in Plato where they exist in some kind of transcendental world. But these transcendentals are in things themselves, and there is no such thing as a thing that does not have the universal in which it, in, it, in itself. Mm, yeah. So uh, that's the activity of the mind then in perceiving is that you extract the form or the universal from what you're perceiving. Well, because rather all, than from some forms existing out there, quote unquote, right. they're in. Well, this is how this is how an Aristotelian, at least at least I know in the Scholastic, the Thomistic context, and I think it's pretty consistent with uh, with uh, the third the third book of uh, Aristotle's work called De Anima. Uh, it's when you have all things consist of matter and form, or maybe I better better put like this: existence and essence. And when you see a thing, like let's say I'm looking at a tree, what happens is that form enters into my mind. And I do not have. I do not. I do not get the actual real existence of the thing. But the form enters my mind, and what my mind is able to do is apply a cognitional existence to that form. And now I have a thing in my mind which is correlative because the form is the is the continuity there between the thing outside and now the thing in my mind. The only issue is that because it exists in my mind, I apply a new existence to the very form in which I have now perceived. Yeah, right. Because form. now there is. The existence of an idea that's in your brain, so there's a new thing. Right, it's a new thing, but it's it's the the important point, and what what it, Kant always it had, correlates. What what Pont ha, what Kant had such a problem with is that it corresponds to the thing in the outside world. Yeah, but we can have actual a direct access to the form and the uh, and the existence of an extra mental reality. This is also why the Monty Python sketch that we play at the beginning is funny because it says Aristotle very much the man in form. Aristotle as sweeper. Aristotle very much the man in form. <laughs> right. And uh, Aristotle, That's clever. Aristotle yeah. is uh, very concerned with what constitutes what constitutes an essence. And uh, I think it's Aquinas who I think very much improved. And this is where, you know, for any scholastics, this is where grace is, in, is perfecting nature, is that all essences exist in the mind of God as exemplar ideas, which are then manifested in this world as forms and we can we are privy to these forms mm. by our by the uh, actions of the intellect now why why am i why a westminster student like myself are concerned with this is because the very critiques of the aristotelian worldview by the critical tradition is that we cannot have access to those forms right we cannot have access to those those things within themselves but if you see that if if the forms themselves are divine exemplars impressed upon you know ectypally within this world the way in which we would have any kind of privy to them is because we have a doctrine of general revelation where okay. we can we can actually get to 
what things are and, and start applying uh, essential predicates to them, like creation or like this. And we have a foundation for how these things actually exist and yes. how we can perceive yes. them. And th- this takes a lot, a lot more work, and that's what I hope to be writing uh, some my THM thesis on, is a, what happens when you add the doctrine of revelation to an Aristotelian worldview. Hmm. You is mean it, like at its root? At its root. I right. mean, uh, Aquinas added so much philosophical content, I mean, a theological content to an Aristotelian worldview, but no medieval philosopher was concerned with the doctrine of revelation, hmm. as far as I know. Interesting. And we know as, as Protestants, well, the doctrine of revelation is just... There's an interesting reason for that. Um, and and I was, this was going to be my next question for you, just out there. I know this is a, a show on philosophy, but a, an historical point. Um, Aristotle was not translated into Latin for a, for a long time, mm-hmm. which is why the medievals didn't deal with it. This is an Boethius, Boethius was going to do it. I believe Boethius lived in the eight, 800s, maybe 9th century. I mean, you know, I, this is an interesting history. I can relate this one. Well, why, yeah. Why don't you explain uh, why Aristotle didn't right. get into Western thought and okay. got into Eastern thought early, and then um, and then what kind of impact that had on the West well, because they Boethius, didn't have Aristotle. Boethius dates are actually in the late uh, late fifth century to early. Oh, I'm much, early, I'm early much sixth off. century, and yeah. this is the interesting history. That's right. Here. He's the end. He's is the end of the ancient period. Aristotle has a book of book of logical treatises called the Eregnon. And the Regnon consists of the, cat, the book on categories, on interpretation, prior analytics, so uh, uh, posterior analytics, and the sophistical refutations. Those are all part of this, this almost what everyone considered to be a single work on logic. And that's what Boethius translated um, at the, you know, right before, I think it was right before he was imprisoned. And the, any Christian could read this and find absolutely nothing. Um, that would be a compromise to to what we would say is uh, fundamental articles of our faith, and that stuck. That was the logical textbook for the West ever since the you know the sixth century, and people looked at Aristotle as giving us truth that was on par with Scripture because logic is truth. We are making truth theorems, and because they thought that you know the, the laws of logic were on uh, were on the same kind of epistemological par as Scripture. They they could they could do that because there was nothing con- conflicting between these two uh, these two worlds. Yeah, and sorry to cut in, but we should also mention who was Aristotle's most famous student. Aristotle's, I don't know, Alexander. Oh yeah. well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, so true. there's definitely a, a connection there with the history of Christianity and the history of Western thought as it develops um, pre Boethius and then you know continue on on what you say. Oh yeah, it was. Um, but it really comes into the – when Aristotle really has ascendancy over the West is in the Middle Ages. And so what this is the interesting dynamic is that Aristotle had such high esteem for centuries and centuries and centuries as the originer of Western logic. It was huge. And the only ones who were privy to his more um, Greek, pagan Greek texts like the metaphysics, like the physics, like on interpretation, on the – on the mind, or you know, in the Latin, it's called de anima, which is particularly problematic for the West. Were Arabs, uh, some yeah, of those, the is you know, Islamic some, philosophers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ava, Avicenna or Avicenna, however you would like to pronounce it, whether you want to pronounce Ibn it, Ibn Rushd, uh, yeah, his name is Ibn Ibn Sina, is uh, is the way uh. you, you'd say, it. and Ibn Sina uh, was a Persian, I believe, and he was a a doctor, and he he was he he wrote a very very influential. Uh, 
work on metaphysics that was that was based on Aristotle. And Ibn Roche from Spain or Av- Rashid, something Av- Averroes or Averroes, Averroes, however you want to say it. Uh, he was also a commentator on Aristotle that was very influential in in the West. Eventually, but none of these texts—the metaphysics, the physics, the anima uh, on the on the generation of species—none of these things were translated until um, the middle of the 13th century, or mm-hmm. not to the beginning, maybe the first yeah. half of the 13th century. I think it was a guy the named era of, a, of Thomas. It was, yeah, it was na- a guy named William Moberbeek, I believe, brought them over from Constantinople, which makes sense because everyone's coming back from the Crusades. And James brought, Vanderbeek, and he brought back with him. Uh, he brought back with him a uh, trans translated Latin text of Aristotle, which yeah. swept through, especially right. the University of Paris and uh, and Oxford, and created just controversy upon controversy for the rest of the Middle Ages. It's really fascinating to think that such a heavyweight philosopher and his major works went untouched in the West for so long because they just never got translated. Because Boethius got imprisoned and he died. And he didn't finish his work. And it's just, it's one of those uh, hypotheticals that really can get the medieval theologian or the ancient church theologian thinking about a lot of things. Because the church could have had a completely different history if Boethius would have finished his work. But he didn't. And what happened was uh, Islam Islam got it, Islamist, uh, Islamic philosophers. Right, yeah. and uh, and then it came to Thomas and and other medieval theologians through a translation. So there's some question as to were they getting Aristotle or were they getting Islamicized Aristotle? <laughs> uh, well, they uh, the the Aristotle the Aristotelian texts that they have in Latin there are big there are big differences in terms of if you have a if you have an English like for instance I have at home I have an English translation of the Greek and I have the English translation of the Latin. And I have some of the Latin itself. Yeah. And if you look at yeah. those two translations, they mm-hmm. are very different because there are two different texts. It's also interesting to, to note how none of these, you know, huge medieval minds knew Greek. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, not even Augustine knew Greek. And if you just go down the line, to know Greek is just you are you are a real specialist. And I mean, not Aquinas barely As knew. said. Aquinas, and I mean, not to mention Hebrew. Hebrew is just off the, uh, off, off the charts, but <laughs> yeah, you so, got, we got to wait till the reformation till people are interested in Hebrew again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, if I were to ask you, Bob, uh, what is, it's kind of funny to use this word at its essence, Aristotelianism. Um, what would you say? Well, well, if you put it in, if you put Aristotle into his Greek context, what all the pre-Socratics were trying to do is to say that all things are X, X. yeah, exactly, right. variable, exactly, and you know, like like water, Heraclitus would say fire, Pythagoras would say numbers, change, um, and one. Aristotle said all things are being and essence, matter and form. Okay, that is the nub. And that's what I hope to get into. What this, what we're doing tonight, is just serving as an introduction to yeah. Aristotle's metaphysics. And and there's about twelve or thirteen books of Aristotle's metaphysics where he will lay the foundations for the rest of his philosophy, the relationship between being and essence, matter and form, and all things fit into those categories. Hmm. And what the medieval scholastics would do is show how even God fits into these categories. God has existence, and God has an essence. Now for most medievals that uh, these things are uh, indistinguishable, 
But nonetheless, everything fits into these categories. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, there was a lecture that Van Til gave, and he said the, the biggest problem um, that he had with any Greek model is when they would say any everything is yeah whatever yeah because you because I mean that's that is I think the issue for any um, any Aristotelian Christian or anyone who has a Christianized Aristotelianism is maintaining the creator creature distinction. Yeah, it's a univocal theory of being. Thomas came extremely, extremely close. <laughs> he really did. I think yeah. it in the end it fails because uh, he has a real doctrine of the. He has a real view, a real view on the analogy between being, and for him there is a, there is a a gradual step um, between how we can predicate beings that are created and beings that are on or the being which is uncreated. Um, I in the end it will look very very similar to what. I think a Vantillian would do for us. Just God and creatures are totally equi- uh, equivocal. There's nothing. There's nothing we can predicate about about them, about uh, except ex, you know, except through revelation, because mm-hmm. God has stooped down and condescended. Oh, you mean unequivocal? So it's all no, no. It, well, there's uh, there's uh, uh, univocal, which means to say oh, that okay. that uh, both creatures and God are under the same kind of predication, and uh, there is you can equivocate. Which is they have nothing to do with each other, right. and so mm-hmm. if you say that oh I'm good but God's good, well our goodness has nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But Aquinas did have a doctrine of imaging, where there is an analogy between mm-hmm. our goodness and God's goodness. The only problem is he just he didn't have the metaphysic to show that God is completely separate, and right. if there wasn't such thing for revelation, this analogy would never actually work. Right. Okay. And uh, so that's that's what I hope that's what I hope to be doing in the next few years. In my studies is applying the doctrine of revelation to the analogy of being uh, being between God and creatures. Mm. And uh, that's what I hope to be doing. Well, I think that's been been a helpful and and an enticing introduction. Um, it's fascinating to talk about Aristotle and his metaphysics. So uh, we touched on quite a few areas there and uh, went at it pretty quickly. But if you have any questions, you can email us at mail at reformforum.org and we would be more than happy to interact and entertain your questions and your comments uh, you can visit Westminster Online at youtube.com slash Westminster Online as well as facebook.com slash Westminster Online or wts.edu and of course we're online at reformforum.org there you can find information about all our programs find out how to subscribe them get them automatically downloaded to your computer thank you so much for listening we hope you join us again next time on Philosophy with the Elogies.